Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. And I'm Tom Scholey. And we're going to be continuing our discourse on the Eisner Miller book uh, put together by Dark Horse Comics in the, the early aughts. We cover uh, five chapters uh, of video. Uh, in, in the link in the description below this video, we have the, the previous uh, couple parts to the uh, conversation. Uh, but I want to invite you guys to like, subscribe, and follow the YouTube channel. Hit the bell icon so that we can notify you when new vids are available. And uh, by doing so, that mitigates the kayfabe effect. Already I've seen a bunch of these Eisner Miller books disappearing from comic shops, disappearing from eBay and Amazon. I don't know if you're going to be able to get that copacetic comics <laughs> doorbuster yeah. bargain for $4 any longer, man. Because when we talk about these comics, the price goes up online and the people who subscribe to the channel get first dibs on the stuff that we chat about. And if you uh, watch these videos to the very end, that uh, gooses the YouTube algorithms, lets uh, YouTube know that it's a, it's a video worth watching and pushes that video out to other comic book loving YouTube watchers who don't necessarily uh, follow the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Helps the channel out a great deal. Uh, awesome to have you uh, on the on the docket uh, this round. Also, Tom, I know this is a book that we've talked about mm -hmm. several times in the past, and uh, we are at part number 11, Old Time Censors, man, where we're talking about this bane of Frank Miller's existence, man, mm -hmm. the Comics Code Authority. Yeah, some fun stuff right off the bat. Talking about censorship and, and him getting around it because he visited the Comics Code office. Who's he? he? Pronouns, uh, Frank, Frank, Frank Miller visits the Comics Code uh, office and sees that they're approving these things based on black and white Xeroxes, so he does color holds for blood. Yes. <laughs> but man, when we talk to Miller, I want to describe the Comics Code office. You know, like these are the kind of things that I'm curious about. Like, how big of an operation was this thing? I think I heard, and this could be, you know, kayfabe, just legend, but uh, somebody, like, very late like went to the address of the comics code authority and it was literally like there was a door and there's like a mail slot it just piles yeah i believe that because who cared at the end right and eisner curiously never worked underneath the uh the comics mm -hmm. code you know when, once once all that stuff started to come into effect he's he's doing uh like uh vocational comics mm -hmm. and and other other weird and and he's doing stuff in newspapers which was not subject yeah yeah just like you know magazine type comics were not bound by the uh, comics code authority is it not the weirdest thing ever that a lot of magazines didn't pop up you know like yeah. all of these publishers like why not transition to magazines so just, many yeah easy ways around the comics I guess code the, the, yeah the cost cost prohibitive yeah. mm -hmm. would have been the reason but yeah or just just complacency like this this i don't think was a big piece of a lot of these guys businesses uh one of the things that we did not talk about i believe the last the last go around uh you know we, we look at so much stuff but they were talking about um the other sort of businesses of like martin goodman he published swank yeah, like uh -huh. he published like legit like well legit you know big time porno mags and shit that made real money. That's where Mario Puzo worked. Mm -hmm. That's where Bruce yeah. Trey Friedman. Magazine management. Yeah, exactly. Like, like this comic stuff, it hit in the in the 40s. Yeah, Captain America like provided mm -hmm. us something, but they're just kind of doing it. The the comics office was it, it, at Marvel was kind of like shit on. Like the guys who worked at the magazines, you know. Oh, you know, you're gonna go work on Mickey Mouse, you know, while we're doing real work. Right. The uh, Miller asks. Eisner about what it was like going 
you know, like watching the Kefauver hearings, the, the Senate subcommittee hearings that led to the comics code. Yeah. And it's pretty impressive, like some of his descriptions for this, you know, guys being humiliated, like Bill Gaines, EC publisher mentions that um, they were trapped in a stupid defense comics guys, you know, putting hypodermic needles in people's eyes. We just looked at this. This yeah. is the, uh, the great Jack Cole, probably not mm-hmm. the only guy guilty of these kinds of comics, but you know, one of the famous images, uh, murder, morphine and me. And uh, describes it as the whole thing was like a Soviet show trial, you know, mm-hmm. ugly and just, you know, the the for the television fear mongering yeah. time period, and Kefauver, the uh, the Senate guy, has been popping up in various places for me. I mentioned that he stopped the uh, congressional hearings against the NWA monopoly trial, the, right. the, the wrestling NWA monopoly trial, because he was friends with one of the local promoters in his like Senate, you know, where he was from. The other thing he did was announce the existence of organized crime or the mafia, despite J. Edgar Hoover and yeah. the FBI officially saying it There's did no not such exist. Thing, yeah. Kefauver's the guy that came out publicly and said it does exist and made them admit it. <laughs> that's a pretty powerful move. Not too many people stood up to J. Edgar Hoover. Right, that's true. Yeah, you get put on his list, and now he's looking at you deeply with Standing his up crew. Up J. Edgar Hoover and the mob in one <laughs> fell stroke. Right, you know? yeah, right. Talk about targets on your back and front and everywhere else. Eisner was on the Mike Wallace show. Like, there, there's uh, Mike Wallace uh, videos, man, with, like, Rod Serling before, like, promoting Twilight Zone. I wonder if the Will Eisner one is there on YouTube. I'd like to see that. Miller uh, asserts that the code was sentence by sentence aimed at shutting down Bill Gaines. And Eisner kind of poo-poos that idea. Mm-hmm. But I kind of grew up with that impression. And yeah. I don't know if it's from other Miller interviews or where I got that idea. But that was always kind of my impression was this company that's, selling better than everybody what can we do about it and it was a pretty convenient excuse we i mean we we went through it point by point uh there is a video about it uh miller goes through it point by point and and okay so suspense stories isn't uh one of the words that can't be used but certainly crime right and terror and horror like all these things Mm -hmm. are on their books no vampirism well there's that no wolfmen well there's that like i mean clearly it's it's uh it's putting a lot of you know these publishers out of business and and it just so happens that that EC is the biggest of those dogs you know Eisner adds Charles Bureau to the list who was doing yeah. crime crime does not pay he kind of innovated that yeah format. it was a that was another one of those big selling books and you know Miller says that's the best line at the time the EC yeah. comics uh, Eisner's a little less willing to say that but you know what I take from that. EC famously paid the most. Yeah. So if you're the other publishers and you've got a bunch of artists going, hey, what about, I'd like a little bit more money on my page rate. Of course they hate EC. Right. It's a terrible competition. They're outselling you and they're paying artists more and now artists want us to pay them more. Right, right, right. None of this is good for business. Yeah, and I think by and large, uh, now now Miller's on the record about his love of like Johnny Craig and stuff, but uh, it, it feels like he's speaking from like an art perspective mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. The, the, the craft of drawing more than the uh, avalanche of text that is Al Feldstein's EC comic scripts. I do think it's worth putting out there though, the fact that they're paying more. Right. You know, that that's a thing that is, is it's a big part of this business. And it, and it took a couple of steps back whenever the comics code happened. Miller gets into this idea about the, um, the medium being outlaw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's trash. You know, and that that's got a, an appeal to it. Disposable, cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all those things. Um, and when I was coming up, like my, I had an aunt that would always tell me about her grand, my grandmother finding her comics and throwing them out, and that would have been like 
probably in the 70s, maybe in the 80s, mm -hmm. but it's still permeated. That outlaw yeah. thing wasn't just like uh, Faust. It was the idea of like, these comics are garbage. It's still not quite gone. There's still like a shadow of it still hanging around a little bit. I, I feel like I feel like you've you've said on the record, man, a time or two, or like your 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 own parents who were very cultured people, or like you know, yeah, you look, you look down on them. It's like like my my dad uh, when uh, there was R. Crumb did uh, Kafka's Metamorphosis. Then he was like, okay, here's a comic book. You know, right. here's you know here's something that gets my approval. You needed to like show him Snatch or something <laughs> like, oh, you like that one? Here's yeah. same, same guy. <laughs> Bring him back around. <laughs> exactly, a reality check. Eisner says it's an interesting point. And it made me think, you know, about this idea of like, what exactly is Miller saying with this idea of outlaw quality of comics? There's, there's this thing where we say comics and it, it encompasses everything, right? Graphic novels and editorial cartoons and, you know, Calvin and Hobbes and all this stuff. But you can kind of drill down because like cartoon is also a name for graffiti in a lot of places around the world. And people will do political messages in that, gar in, in that graffiti where it is like you ask them, that's cartoons. Right. But it's much bigger context than like Fantastic Four or something mm -hmm. like that that we think of here as maybe cartoons. And uh, I think it's interesting to contextualize it that way because like we've got everybody's just using these words and meaning a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. But there is a lineage to that idea of like the baseness of, of crude line art and what that communicates. Yeah. I was I was approached one time by a, um, a nonprofit that wanted to do like educational comics for I think it was for Haiti. But, you know, part of the reason they wanted to do educational comics is it's it's for literacy you know it's like a way to to go past literacy rates and still communicate information and so that base idea that miller puts out there you know it's again not outlaw faust but more of outlaw like this is really low low brow medium like like accepting the vulgarity of the comic that's it, a good word for and, it and and the obscenity of the comic like creates opportunity and that's something that like miller and his generation sort of benefited from and you could see it even as far as like you know steve englehart and and jim starlin comics you see them doing that sort of thing and miller mentions the the british invasion with people who were divorced from the localized fandom that we had here and the established idea of like you know superman batman like like all that stuff so they're looking at it from like an outsider perspective uh they don't have any compunction about about the nature of like what it is man and when they come over here and add their you know, 2000 AD type spin on it, it creates a sensation. And, you know, for me as a comic reader, like my, my sort of trajectory as a reader is this, it's this reinvigoration of excitement where like when I first get a hold of comics, it gives me a sense of satisfaction. I feel real cool. I, I love it. I can't wait to read the next. And then you start to see the pat pattern recognition uh -huh. sets in. You start to see the formula. And then it would be like the British guys, you know, uh -huh. like you start reading Something some of fresh. that. And then it's like I start getting that feeling again. And then like now manga in my life, yeah. it gives me that same sense. And it could be almost any manga to a certain degree. But then you realize like, okay, it's Shonen Jump comic, like Shonen comics. There's a formula there. Like I'm going to move to something else it's 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 a pretty cool part of like the comics absorption education whatever you want to call that that crudeness vulgarity irreverence 
I think that stuff's very present in Miller's work, like Dark Knight Returns, I think has a lot of that, even in the drawing style. Yeah, and I think like if you track his drawing across his career, it moves in that direction. Mm -hmm. You can see what he's uh, yeah, describing. He, you could see like a 1981 Miller evolving in a different direction where he could have gone more illustrative and it's like that that just was the wrong idea you know he knew that like the the gold was was the other direction and doing the stuff that i'm doing now like with red room like just an exercise in vulgarity like <laughs> to me it's it's like let's 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 keep uncle gary's ear to the streets a little bit man like let's let's keep it honest make a comic book that's a comic book that parents will think is trash seduction of the innocent comes up man miller read it eisner did not Miller calls it a, one of the worst pieces of scholarship he's ever seen. I read it. You guys read it? No. No, just excerpts. It, uh, it really, it, it's so skewed. It's, it's a, it's, it's just a soapbox puff piece. Like there's nothing scientific about mm -hmm. it. It's, it's, it's purely editorializing. And, uh, the, that's like that era where you might get, you get color plates, you know, and with the imagery, one of my, the pieces that is burnt into my mind, it's a, I think it's a Batman panel. And they're talking about the images inside of images. And it's kind of a landscape panel, uh, a bust of Batman. You see where the clavicle fits mm -hmm. into the shoulder muscles and you see the meat of the shoulder muscle. And there is a gap. Like if you look at the flayed figure, uh, sort of you could touch it. It's a, it's a pressure point. It's like a little dip. Or yeah, something. there's a dip there. Yeah. And uh, the artist communicated that with black, kind of like the uh, Will Eisner shading, or like the train track shading, where it's like very dark, but it's like crosshatch line. They zoom into that. So now you're seeing two, like, two kind of lines going in the same direction. So it's like legs, and that shadow is a big pelt of pubic hair mm -hmm. and it's talking about the images inside of images and it's like get the fuck out of here yeah yeah if you're if you're beating off to uh batman's traps clowns you are got you got a bigger problem clowns are still doing that uh on both poles of like the political ideology you have like your qanon ish type people like looking into things seeing weird things you got cornballs on the left looking into things uh trying to come up with like specious arguments and allegations uh, hard boiled comes up, man. Whenever Uncle Jeff gets a uh, gets a uh, gets a mention, we got to talk about that piece, man. And it was a uh, some fourteen year old had a copy of Hard Boiled. First of fourteen, like what kind of like I didn't know we had helicopter parents in the nineties. <laughs> That's when it started. We're the latchkey kids, man. <laughs> and he says that that comic book Hard Boiled is the reason her son, her fourteen year old son, is moody. moody. <laughs> <laughs> Harsh charges. Yes. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> You're accused of being moody. Ridiculous. <laughs> Man, and then you get a good excuse to show it, a nice piece of Jeff Darrow mm -hmm. art there. <laughs> Talking out of school. You know, like in this era, you know, like when I was a kid and stuff reading this uh, about Frank Miller and wanting to know about Frank Miller, I'd always be kind of bummed, like, why is he always talking about the comics code? That's so boring. Who could, like, tell me about, you know, Batman or, tell, you know, like, why are you... T but it's like somebody had to kind of, you know push back against it, you know, because it, it, the comics code was something you just kind of accepted. Like, like I thought it was like a government thing, even, right. you know, that like, this is just, oh yeah, comics, they have to go through this thing, of course, you know? Yeah, it seems so official. Yeah, exactly. Kid reading comics, like, never even questioned what you could do around it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's like, you have to make sure the stake goes into the heart of the vampire. That was, that was what Miller was doing. So if he was a little monotonous about it or whatever, you know, one note, it's like that's what you had to do to get this thing just out of everybody's life once and for all. 
Stanley comes up a lot in conversation in our talking out of school thing, and Eisner definitely has his opinions on on Stanley. Said that he had a perfect connection with his audience. Man, these this is this is this is circus comics, and he's a carnival worker. Yep, yeah, um, Eisner seems to accept the idea, like the this that you know Stan was the center, like that that he was the the, the major force, not Kirby. Like, yeah, he doesn't yeah. seem to you know even though he sat down with Kirby and had conversations with Kirby, he's he you know he he you know believes the other narrative and he's a business owner sure you know, he, yeah he, he, he identifies he, with stanley he, he doesn't sure. want bob powell and yeah. and uh and george tusca and uh -huh. people like that uh looking for ownership of stuff yeah so they talk a little here on on jack kirby steve ditko and stanley and, and you know trying to figure out credits and things and says the writers are uh, the best at talking history and certainly stanley may be the best of the best of talking period but what comes out on this page at the bottom Ditko has a son? That's no, bullshit. That, yeah, that was that, apocryphal. That, yeah, that, that's, that's his son. nephew. All right. And everybody assumed that was his son. You know, if you just, oh, there's Ditko and a, and a kid. Shout some more Ditko, man. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Glad yeah. to have that straightened out because in yeah. my mind, I'm like, that sounds like a whole chapter of Ditko that I'm sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I've seen that pop up here and there. Yeah. Okay. But uh, Ditko, the, the, the earlier mention is Miller's argument that Spider Man would be nothing without the this sort of vision of Steve Ditko. Uh, and what he what he brought brought to the the game so mm -hmm. you know that conversation is going back and forth i like to see it framed that way you know i think ditko is so different than kirby and, mm -hmm. and kirby's volume is so great that you could lose the contributions and it's vital that ditko has this very different voice uh that he brings to that yeah really but really no other comic like it you know spider-man like kind of kind of stood alone like up to that point and, and even a, a little bit as much as it's been replicated you know to this day it's got you know an amazing story of miller trying to do a collaboration with ditko on <laughs> mr a this is how everybody's attempt to collaborate with ditko goes <laughs> yeah but uh, yeah you would imagine he would get further than anybody but ditko was just wasn't budging mr a was a time and a place that time has passed nobody would publish this and frank miller's like anybody would publish it right and but he takes the magnanimous route by saying like you're steve ditko when really it's like the tandem is easily sellable oh yeah easily sellable no doubt even if it was like drawn by like that crazy you know that steve ditko style with his lettering and all the volumes mm -hmm. of text but the thing that miller wanted to do was to take take the nuts and bolts of like what mr a is and take some of the soapbox away from the shit but his thing was like this black and white character in a colorized world, but not only that, like computer colored, where you could uh -huh. have this like disparity, unlike uh, what would have been possible in comics past. Yeah, it's it's such a uh, polished pitch. Like as if Ditko and Miller isn't enough to sell this uh, yeah. book to any publisher, that idea of the black and white color, black and white character in a color world, like that's all you need mm -hmm. you know like, like how how badly do you need the mr a part though i mean he's a guy with a fedora like you could make your you know call mr b and like <laughs> nobody would complain yeah it wouldn't it, it wouldn't be hard to uh replace mr a but the ditko contribution yeah, no, is what you couldn't replace. exactly eisner cites pure capitalism with stan lee uh you know stan told him his dream was to go to hollywood uh, to to be involved with movies and in several conversations just very frankly Stanley is saying like I want to make a lot of money I want to be rich my goal is to be rich uh, from the point of view of somebody who went through the depression I could see how you could place some value on that man to, to have a, abundance I could see how that's important I think it's one of the things that makes uh, 
makes Stanley such an interesting character. You know, like he's in that nexus. It's it's easy to criticize him as company man and the lines that he would put out there in terms of creator rights, but also like he's also a person that lived through whatever stuff he went through, which would have been a lot of managing a comic book company when comics were just kind of hated and dealing with a bunch of artists. Like all of it seems like he was probably getting shit from both directions, from above and from the artists that were coming and going. Well, he he got 10,000 hours of managing a comics like group, you know, like, uh, okay, here's some stuff for you to do. Oh, you need some work. Okay, here's something for you. Like that's a totally separate skill. We read his, his um, deposition mm -hmm. and he was talking about the mechanics of just like pages going out here, yeah. shipping these, getting this back lettered, shipping that to the inker. And it is really like, I can see why you'd want to go do anything else besides that. That mm -hmm. seemed nightmarish, and I can't imagine he had much of a staff through many uh, of those ten thousand yeah, hours. Yeah, Saul Brodsky uh, did a lot. You know, like he was like he's he's like an unsung hero. Modern day guy at this point who has that connection with uh, that with uh, the readers is uh, is Todd McFarlane, uh, called called out and name checked. Eisner concurs, man. Yeah, he's writing to his own people, and then this is the classic Frank Miller piece right here. <laughs> Cartoonist Kayfabe is brought to you by the comic books that Ed Piscor and I make. Available now in your local comic shops or online wherever you buy comics and books is Red Room, Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit. Season 1, the Antisocial Network, available as a collected trade paperback. Season 2, Trigger Warnings. Issue 1 is now out. Issue 2, coming soon, if not already out whenever you see this video. Banned in 26 countries, banned in 7 comic shops, but they can still order them for you. So be sure and ask for it by name. And the rest of Ed's bibliography available still in print, WYSIWYG Portrait of a Serial Hacker, X-Men Grand Design, three oversized treasury volumes of that, and Hip Hop Family Tree, four oversized treasury volumes of that as well as, well as two box sets. And coming to comic shops in March and April, Hulk Grand Design, a reimagining of the 60-year history of The Incredible Hulk, over 500 comic books, over 10,000 pages condensed into two oversized issues telling the complete story of The Incredible Hulk, and available in several beautiful eye-catching covers, Marcos Martin, Peach Momoko, and cartoonist Kayfabe's own Ed Piscor. And coming in April, Hulk Grand Design Madness, covers by me, Ed McGinnis, and Jeff Darrow. Also available in comic shops and book sellers, Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive from Image Comics, A Homeless Ninja on a Skateboard, and The Plain Janes with writer Cecil Castellucci, possibly the first uh, young adult graphic novel here in America. And now back to our regular scheduled programming. Mm -hmm. that, that quote, now he says, this is the quote, there's a moment when you're 14 years old and you take your pen knife out and you carve a swastika on your desk at school. Todd McFarlane owns that mind. I mean, Miller... It sounds like he's painting a self-portrait there. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, Will Eisner's wife is chilling. <laughs> and she's like, God, what a description. <laughs> the Eisners both laugh. She goes, but I could see that. I see. I, I understand what you mean. She, she, she may not know Todd McFarlane from Hell or High Water, but she knows that brand of youth and what that brand of youth is trying to fuck with. And Eisner defends his pal, man. Frank is never wishy-washy about his descriptions. <laughs> <laughs> gets Anne into the conversation a little bit more now that she chimed in. Yeah, she kind of woke up. She's like, what the fuck's going on in that room? <laughs> <laughs> and then he says that Anne complains whenever, uh, whenever Eisner, Will Eisner gets together with Stan, and she's like, oh, they compete. They're like comedians. 
Yet um, Stan values the quip. And if you like watch interviews with Stan, he'll like stop everything and be like, that was a good line. You know, when somebody has <laughs> yeah. like a good comeback or something. Like Jerry Lawler or somebody <laughs> in wrestling. You gotta read your joke books, man. And, and it's great. Miller has some advice for the next time they're getting into this. He says, this is what I do with writer Neil Gaiman. Who's, who's his version yes. of, of <laughs> Stan, Stan Eisner. Yeah, yeah. he says, uh, well, what do you draw? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just knock him off the foundation a little bit. This is a good piece, man, because this is, we get caddy with Miss Ann Eisner. And she's like, remember when we had breakfast with, uh, with, St with Stan and his wife? She's his intellectual equal or something like that. That's Will. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. She seemed at the same intell intellectual level as he. And, I don't know, that feels a little passive-aggressive, potentially. <laughs> um, from all accounts, Stan and Joan were like this, almost like they'd light up a room, they'd, and it would be the Stan and Joan show. And it was kind of, and, you know, these pers big personalities that would kind of, you know, steer everything. And it was kind of like, for Stan Lee, it was a question of, at a certain point, he figures out how to get that part of his personality into the books he's making you know these like sort of sterile books and once he does that it's kind of like you know off to the races bob kane's the next guy yeah and does not fare nearly as well as stan lee <laughs> but even Anne has something to say there like oh bob kane that's a, that's the batman guy right the same guy that went to high school with uh with will eisner but was a little bit younger and it turns out that like as bob kane gets more and more popular over time no, in high school, Kane was a little bit older than Eisner. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Kane was a little older than Stan Lee. Went to the same high school, if I'm not mistaken. Finish that, because yeah, yeah, yeah. this gets good. So as Bob Kane gets more and more popular, uh, and he's giving interviews, and he's kayfabe in his story up a little bit, uh, there were some years getting shaved off <laughs> of his age, and Anne goes up to Eisner and is like, hey, guess what? You're getting younger. <laughs> Bob Kane did another interview. That's so funny. <laughs> That's so funny, but man, some some awful stories about, uh, you know, like like they talk about Bill Finger, of course, being uncredited for a lot of that Batman mm -hmm. work, and uh, creating the uh, the Finger Award, right? Mm -hmm. For uh... yeah, you get the finger. Yeah, Jerry Robinson had had that idea, like lit lit up the room at the Eisner Awards, man, by saying like you get the finger, and then <laughs> proceeded to pop that middle finger up. Uh, Miller mentions the Archie Goodwin story wrote as a parody of Bob Kane's career. And yeah. I do wonder if that is that story, the success story, that's in comics by Les Daniels, uh -huh. drawn by Al Williamson. Fantastic. And it's this, like, it's this, like, Alex Raymond-like uh, draftsman, like, who just hires a bunch of ghosts. And I think he kills them all or so. I mean, they yeah, all have it, to yeah, die. Yeah, it's like an EC-style story, and it's like... Oh, where's the script? So he's waiting for the guy with the and so then the guy writes the script and then he's like, Okay, I just finished the script. Here you right. go. And, and and yeah, the three guys all come to his when they figure out what's going on, they come to his studio to kill him and they got like their their uh their like uh T squares and stuff, and then like yeah, he kills them to keep them quiet and then and then they're like their undead corpses come after him. I've never read that story and I want to real bad. Oh, it's, it's, it's great. great. Yeah. I bet I bet you've seen imagery from it. Because it because it's, it's probably yeah, the most to, popular. I'm trying to think of the name of the artist in it, because he had like a funny name too. <laughs> you know what? Hold, just hold yeah, tight just real grab quick. it. Yeah. Yeah. So of course in the in the Kayfabe studio, we, we we got it all, man. So Yeah, what was his name? The success story. Yeah. Man, Al Williamson's the greatest. Oh, he's so good. Jeez. His name's Baldo. Baldo Baldo Smudge. That's it. <laughs> Baldo Smudge. Great name. Yeah, so is that is that uh, 
is that uh, Bob Kane's hairpiece? Like I never, I never. But I mean, he's got the cigarette holder like Bob Kane would right. use. You know, I mean, I, reading this, like I assumed that this is exactly the story they're referring to. See, there's this thing like like uh, Ch- Chester Gold did uh, stri- like strips in in uh, Dick Tracy that was making fun of the assembly line ghost workers and stuff. But uh, there it is. Yep, yeah, and then little uh, you know he- heavy metal album cover <laughs> image. <at the> end. <laughs> So good. Anyhow, that's incredible. That's got to be the one that Miller's talking about. Yes. There, there can't be two Archie Goodwin uh, ghost artist stories, right? Eisner tells this story, um, and he says that the, he recalls this about Jerry Robinson, which it feels like it must be in reference to to uh, Bill Finger, right? Because it's the story is that he said he once went to Bob Kane and he said, "Look, you're very successful now, and you can afford to give me credit for what I did." And Bob said, "I don't see it that way." No, this could be Jerry Robinson. He did so much work on on uh, Batman, mm-hmm. and he, I mean, he wrote the books. Joker. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's uh, man, that's cold. Go watch uh, Bill and Me, or, right. or I think is the name of that documentary, and you see the Mia culpa like that Bob Kane pulls. Like after everybody's dead, mm-hmm. he that's when it's safe. Yeah, he goes, oh, you know, maybe he should have got a little bit more. Like he's a real, a real schmuck, a real douchebag. <clears throat> Bob is a long story, but to get back to Stan, and this is where we get into that circus talk. Spider-Man is pure circus, and then you see these like bits that like every one of those characters had like some some circus villains mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, it really made me think, because um, I never hear it framed that way. But, you know, like, we always hear, like, Alan Moore's take that superheroes are fascists. This is the alternative version of how you could look at superheroes, and it's mostly been phased out. Like, this is not the way people treat them today. This is relegated to, like, the Bruce Tim, like, Batman Adventures kind of mm-hmm. uh, yeah. brand, brand of superhero. Well, yeah, because Spider-Man was, um, you know, he was, like, an underdog and, you know, uh, you know downtrodden and... And uh, an anti-hero in some respects, and that that was an element. And like those early Marvel things, you got Submariner, you got Human Torch, these sort of anti-heroes. And then Captain America shows up, who's kind of like that, you know, strong jaw, like, hey, guy, you know, hey, kids, let's, you know, that kind of super. The tights, the spandex, the cape were straight out of Barnum and Bailey Circus. Strongman wore capes. I I again symbols make a, on shirts. I again make that connection back to clowns. Like I I, I still think that's all in the language of comics. And we've kind of gone in one direction by we, I suppose it's Marvel and DC primarily. Right. But it's still there. Like, you know, you can have those other elements. You can have those circus elements, the colorful, the humorous, the entertaining. Like, it doesn't have to be that just the strong man part. And I don't think it was in the beginning. At some point, Stan goes up to Eisner and says, all all I want to do is be rich. Will, what is rich? And I said, I don't know. Depends on uh, the way your neighbors live. Well, that was another thing. Stanley, he said he'd always try to buy like the cheapest house in a rich neighborhood. <laughs> the crap on those just imagine Stanley creating the DC Universe comics, which would have been about this time, I think. We did a video uh, about the uh, the the only one that I have, which is the uh, the Joe Kubert uh, Batman uh, comic that has Stanley's name on it. Has some stink of some uh, Ghost Riders on there. I don't know. Something tells me Stan isn't coming out, out of his castle to write that stuff. Well, he created a character for himself that's like very easy to copy. So you like, you know, I've heard accounts of people working with Stan Lee where it's like, just write it in Stan's style. He'll, he'll change whatever he needs to change. 
and then the thing comes out and it's exactly what they submitted you know? yeah 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 like like i've had that experience firsthand with with pull quotes mm -hmm. from uh from stan lee where you just send them what it is and uh you know gets a thumbs up or thumbs down and again i, I say this like he's successful you know what i mean like we're, we're sitting here sort of like criticizing stan lee and and he has plenty to be criticized for but also like did a lot you know, like a huge titan of, of comics history. And Eisner, Eisner, they recognize that, you know, yeah. like I don't want to lean too much on the one side because they do talk that part up too. Well, Stanley had like a goofus and gallant thing of like whatever complaints you had about him, DC was a hundred times worse. The yes. guy's over there. So oh, like, we're going to get know, there too. He's a prince. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but Eisner says, you know, he hasn't evolved. Like Stanley's always been Stanley as long as he's known him. The ultimate showman. Miller says, uh, you know, when Eisner says he's the ultimate showman miller says we could use that right now somebody who has that kind of charisma welcome to the cartoonist kayfabe channel boys and girls or the marvel movies like those movies are essentially the the charismatic mouthpiece for what's left of the marvel dc style comic books i still stand behind the cartoonist kayfabe channel <laughs> as being the most charismatic uh, forces in comics today yeah where are our billions stan lee started out like those like bullpen bull like like the the sort of editorial voice in those early Marvel comics were, it was anonymous. Like he wouldn't say like, hey, this is your buddy Stan Lee. It was just like, hey, you know, this is us. This is Marvel, you know, and then it slowly crept into from being just this like anonymous, like voice of Marvel to being, hey, it's your buddy Stan Lee, you know? Yeah, totally. It ends with uh, Eisner uh, having a conversation with, with Stan. What what would you change? You know, with, I think maybe Martin Goodman or somebody somebody from the office. Dude, Stan brings him in to interview with the guy from the office about taking over Stan's job at Marvel Comics. This is an amazing <laughs> mm -hmm. anecdote. I'd never yeah. heard this before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like, uh, first question, like, what would you do differently? Eisner says he'd create a royalty system. Dude's Get the fuck eyes, out of my office. <laughs> dude's eyes glazed over, and went, dude went to Stan and was like, like, who is this guy? <laughs> where'd, you, where'd you find this fool? It's so, I mean, look, that's where the industry went. Mm -hmm. Eisner was right, you know, but instead we're going to dip for a, a couple of decades before they figure it out. Yeah, and, and it's going to play itself out in real life, and then, you know, Eisner will take take the credit for, for, <laughs> for suggesting it. You know, I read The Dreamer as well, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Awards, man. Should should we have been so vulgar, the, to use the word we've used a lot in on this episode, should we be so vulgar as to have our Eisner Awards <laughs> sitting right here while we while we chat about this piece, Jimmy? We should do that. Yeah, make, a, make a necklace <laughs> out Future <of> note. <laughs> I don't have too much to say from this. This is a, about the Eisner Awards and the idea that how the awards help comics reach a wider audience or uh, be, gain acceptability. And uh, Will Eisner has won Eisner Awards. Yes. I will say that Eisner Awards look cooler than this now, though. Mm hmm You know, I like that little globe. And this is another one of those things where, like, you know, it's... I don't hold the Eisner Awards particularly high, but they... Comics have certainly done what Eisner describes them doing, you know, gaining that kind of respectability and reaching wider audiences, whether those are libraries, schools, all-age readers, whatever the case may be. Um, so, you know, having legitimate awards probably does contribute to that. It's, a, it's an easy, it's the thumbnail, it's the cliff notes, you know, for somebody from the outside that's looking to maybe order books for their library. That The Eisner Award that Frank Miller was holding there looked like the Gene Day Award. It did, yeah, 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 like something you could just, like, get, get from anywhere. You know, go to you, you get trophies that, are you, us. You get that in in uh, Little League blockbusters. 
and uh, not Hollywood blockbusters, but comic book blockbusters. And, and they start with that a little bit, man, trying to figure out the distinction. And, and, and what Miller's talking about is like these intercompany crossovers, these, these big bombastic event comics, uh, breaking Superman's, no, uh, breaking Batman's back, killing mm-hmm. Superman, these kind of stunt things. That like to be on it like I would I would pray for this in, in like a modern day comic because because like they're going for even cheaper pops yeah nowadays man it's funny to come out of Miller's mouth though to criticize the comics industry looking for blockbusters considering like he he's the Jaws or the Star Wars of comics with right. Dark Knight Returns like it's the ultimate comics blockbuster and and he sort of whatever he puts his name on he becomes that like like it is that so like that Master Race thing is that what it was called yeah yeah like the Dark Knight three uh, that Superman Year One, it doesn't read like a Frank Miller comic. Mm-hmm. Like you can't convince me by any, in any way, shape, or form that he had a very heavy hand in a lot yeah, of that the, stuff. The, the Master Race thing had many comics. Yeah. that do have his authorial stamp on. Totally, totally. Like those are the joints. But you get his name big in the thing, you're gonna sell some. Miller criticizes DC as being problematic because they don't like noise. There's always been tension in his relationship with them because he wants noise every time out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Weird, you know, like these are kind of strange ideas to me for 2003. You know, they, this this kind of talk makes so much sense now to yeah. me. I'm surprised to hear it back then. Eisner mentions Abrams as a small publisher with uh, high quality. <laughs> and they're talking about the direct market and how it's just like, peddling to the same people who have always been there will always be there he calls it the bottle city of candor like, <laughs> like, like just kind of divorcing yourself from you know the other you know 6.8 billion people on the planet but to be honest I, I like i like the sort of gutter nature of of direct market comics and stuff like that and honestly i i swear that like that direct market store that simpsons comic book guy makes fun of I don't know how many of those stores are left right yeah, because i think point. they go out of business at this yeah. point like you kind of got to be smart and, and run a good shop and and both know your audience and also be able to meet that audience at the door and uh in my experience like that shift has happened over the last 20 years quite a bit that uh, comic book guy was created before the comic book crash of the 90s yeah <laughs> well yeah i mean i've run into yeah. that guy too quite a yeah. bit too but a lot less often now mm-hmm. than uh you know in my early days of reading it's funny, it's almost like Miller drags Eisner out into the deep end of the pool here to talk mm-hmm. about the direct market, because I feel like that's way outside of Yeah, what, what does Eisner he know about operates. the direct market, yeah. Yeah, it is funny, like, it is interesting, the, the operation that Eisner has put together, because on previous chapters, you know, he's coordinating with several foreign, like, he's got deals all over the world whenever he has a new book out, man. You know, that's multiple income streams. Uh, you, you, get, you get a good publisher at France or something, it's... You du- you double your money that you make in America with with you know a Dargo or a good mm-hmm. good publisher out there uh, when, when your comic find, finds a good footing. Talks about how protective uh, you know like a DC Comics is with their property Batman. Goes and, back uh, to Donenfeld. Yeah, Harry Donenfeld Eisner talks about and as you say, definitely a darker picture than Stan Lee. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, it's, and basically he, like he's the one of those guys that like he doesn't zip his lip about. Like this, I own this. I I own Superman. Therefore, I created Superman. Right. I could replace any editors. I could replace any artists. I could replace any writer. This is this is my stuff, mm-hmm. and it's it's a it's a well-oiled machine. Miller gets into the uh, how this is a disgraced field, and I think that that 
hangs over this whole interview or his per, his point of view i should say mm -hmm. and i think if you're of a certain age you have that it, I, I know friends who are older than me yeah that have that where it's like it's always going to be that i don't know redheaded stepchild of like film and literature mm -hmm. and and i think we've gotten to a point where that's not the truth anymore but if you fought for it for decades and your heroes were scarred by it um, I think you carry that, and I think that's what Miller is showing here. Those those guys that we know, they they have scar tissue of of like yeah. the '90s and stuff. Like being a kid in the uh, speculator boom of the '90s, received no invective, man. Received no trauma from from anybody because a lot of people were holding on to comic books like it was uh, Pokemon cards or something. Uh, but a lot of people didn't have that experience, man, and definitely, uh, I mean independent comics in the late 90s early 2000s they called them navel gaze comics and it was <laughs> it was all that kind of self-effacing like unhelpful you know kinds of talk this is that donenfeld piece eisner says he was in the elevator with them one day and donenfeld says i buy properties what do you mean you want to own this thing i own everything you know talking <laughs> about eisner wanting to do a book there or whatever and uh he said Look, I hire editors, and if the book doesn't sell, I fire the editors and get somebody else. I can replace anybody I want in my shop. So yeah, there, see? There, there's your boss telling yeah. telling the talent. That's that's the, the pitch to the talent. Looking at Eisner as talent, and Eisner is a boss. Yeah. Well, now we're publishers. You know, they, they went down to the uh, little accountant there on the corner, got their LLC formed. Now what do we do? Well, we need content. That's how it goes. Miller says that the uh, the big mistake they made was putting our names on the books. <laughs> yeah, that's one of his his classic pithy com <clears throat> comments. Now I I'm no longer a Stan uh, Spider Man fan, I'm a Steve Ditko fan. Yeah, he's got a whole spiel about that stuff. Heard it a million times. I still think that's a minority point of view. Yeah, especially oh, yeah. in the direct market. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not a minority point of view to the people putting pencil to paper making comics. Basically, everybody else is like. Well, I mean, I, I'm that way too. All I did was collect artists, but I don't think that's the majority of comic well, book collectors. I mean, well, the, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, you, and you make comics, right? Okay. right so. Exactly. Yeah, you're part of that that community. The um, like Spider-Man, the transition that Spider-Man makes from Ditko to post Ditko is so seamless. Like, like not creatively, but like people just were like, oh, here's the new issue of Spider-Man. Like, like it didn't seem like there was any kind of big controversy of like, oh, I don't like Spider-Man anymore, you know? And there is with like the artists, like you talked to Jeff yeah. Darrow, he, he's, he was like, oh yeah, you know, I wasn't quite feeling the, the John Romita stuff or whatever, but it's the same argument when we, when we show that Judge Dredd comic and the, we see the color holds over top the black ink. And there are people who don't see, they see that black area as, as black, not as like a dark orange, brown that like is melded together nicely with the color mm -hmm. they just see black like and they're like what are you guys talking about it's black and there's color like it's just yeah it was they're... peter parker last issue it's peter parker this issue what's the what's the big deal you know? right i saw it whenever like the uh the kirby estate was really embroiled in that lawsuit and it seemed like the public fans just all sided with the Marvel yeah. corporate thing of like, you're going to threaten my characters in exactly. some way. Well, and it's like, they don't even exist if, Kirby, <laughs> if not for Kirby. Like any joy you've gotten from a Marvel character, you owe to the Kirby imagination. But whenever it comes like, oh, this could offset, you know, this could mess up next summer's, my, my movie next summer. It was all on the side of the movie. You're, t you're talking to addicts. You know, they're <laughs> addicts. And it's like, you're stopping my drip. You know, if, if the, is this Kirby thing going to keep uh, me from getting the next, you know, Captain America movie? <laughs> that hurt me, though, personally. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It just felt like such a... 
you know, like how could you ever side against Kirby? Yeah, or yeah, or side with a corporation over a human being. You know. Yeah, that's that's or, hurt, or, hurts your soul for humanity. Or, yeah, side with imaginary characters that's, over. Yes, well know. said. All right, the last section that we're going to look at today, man, living living history. This is great. Miller says, in the time he's been in the field, the most significant thing to happen is stuff coming back into print. All of a sudden, we have access to the history of comics. Even more true today. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's 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 the greatest. It's why I always say it's a golden age for the comic book fan, because we've got everything at our fingertips. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is 20 years ago. He figured, you know, like he, he's seeing it coming. I love the anecdotes, man, because like like we, you know, we we have our own versions of that, where a young, uh, of a young Frank Miller is getting hold of like a Warren magazine, or just gets mm-hmm. the uh, Comic Book Heroes book by Jules Pfeiffer and sees one Spirit story, and is like, "Holy smokes! Yeah, this is where Jim Steranko got mm-hmm. his ideas. This is where this guy got his idea. I I want more of this." And then you discover that there was like a whole wide world of these mm-hmm. comics and they were coming out every seven days, seven pages every seven days. Like that's a kid in the candy store, man. That's part of what I want to do with cartoonist kayfabe. You know, like he says he got his first real taste of history that wasn't from the two big houses, Marvel and DC. Yes, because like the rest of it gets erased, you know, like constantly I feel like we pull out old comics and if it's not Marvel and DC in some cases, no matter how popular it was, they're just not part of the the conversation. Yeah, yeah. All the histories, like Joe Pfeiffer, the comic book hero, sixty five. Like, like he was in comics. Like everybody who writes about comics is in comics. So it's it's up to us. It's just it's just like closed system of just like fan culture, like keeping the thing going. Like Bill Shelley, fandom guy. Roy Thomas, alter ego, fandom guy. Uh, you know these Blake Bells and th- these other kind of guys who like do these prose books. They they love comics. They're they're not some wild-eyed academic coming into the game. These are just intense like comic people. That that fifteen-year-old kid who's up up in in, uh, in New England who's like the world's foremost expert on Charlton comics. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah, we need those treasures. And speaking of everybody that's in you know doing comics history, coming from comics, going through the Hulk letter columns for the book. I've got Gary Groth, Kim Thompson, and Eric Reynolds, the, uh, the the Comics Journal and Fanographics, you know, the minds behind Comics Journal and Fanographics. Is that so. how they met? Because I know they were close <laughs> like, the person's address in, in the early days. Isn't there a Dean Mullaney in there, too? Oh, yeah, Dean Mullaney. D- there's a page, two letters, Dean Mullaney and Kim Thompson. On the same letters page. That's it. That's oh, the whole thing. A column of text each. It's amazing. <laughs> Boy, they don't make letters columns like that anymore. No. But I do think it is still, like, all makers like mm-hmm. writing writing letters anyhow everybody makes it seems in, in this era that's that was the argument a lot of people were putting was that there's no readers anymore there is yeah. nobody reading comics it's just people reading them as how-to books of how to make comics yourselves and and, and, and they say that today yeah you know like like it's it's poetry now mm-hmm. you know there's some some cool stuff here too miller talks about he thinks there's a dramatic generational shift happening and that there are people coming in who don't carry that baggage. Yeah. Us. <laughs> you know? Oh, definitely not like, us. Well, I was going to say that's around when we started. But it is, I mean, I, I agree with that totally, that there are these people that have come in. You know, like everybody I know, my age and older, we sort of have the same story. Mm-hmm. You know, you found Marvel and DC, maybe Archie Comics, but that was it. That was what yeah. you had access to. If you're 25 making comics, you may have never read a Spider-Man mm-hmm. comic. And good like yeah. bring in new stuff. And you can read a lot of comics without ever having yes. to hit a Spider-Man. Yeah, you can be a hardcore comics mm-hmm. fan 
and never read a Marvel comic. Yeah, absolutely, man. And this is where uh, the conversation could dovetail a little bit into into SPX and the energy coming from there. Uh, what's fun is like both of them kind of clown the artwork a lot in the SPX crowd, but there's a point of view from these comics, plus just the sheer joy of people making comics for comics' sake that uh, is something that they appreciate. It feels like a pat on the head. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> nice job, boys. You know. Eisner uh, tells a story about, in 1940, yes. calling comics a uh, literary art form, and Rube Goldberg telling him, uh, that's bullshit, <laughs> yeah. you're a vaudevillian, don't forget this is vaudeville. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of a good lesson to apply to, like, all entertainment. You know, you could say that to, to a, a movie, like, the most prestigious movie director, you could tell him the same thing, you know. By the way, that kind of goes back to that clown conversation, yeah. too, and the circus coming out of the circus. Um, he also adds Milk Kniff. You know, he interviews Milk Kniff in Shop Talk, another book of interviews. We, with, we with should creators. do that interview soon. Yeah, we should, definitely. And uh, he, he tells Mort, you're a great writer. I admire your work. And Kniff says, oh, I sell papers. Yes, mm -hmm. there's a lot of that, man. These uh, interviews, if you get your hands on the Will Eisner Portrait of a Sequential Artist Blu-ray, one of the great uh, added pieces is the recorded audio tape uh converted to mp3 conversations with Will Eisner, with Jack Kirby, Harvey Kurtzman, Mil Kniff, No Adams, Gil Kane, all the way up to Phil Suling, Gil Fox. Like, this is an incredible treasure and a great piece of company while you're sitting there making your comics at home. Hearing Jack Kirby it's, speak from... Uh -huh. So good to have actual footage, you know, yes. to hear these guys Absolutely. Is, uh, is a treasure. And speaking of Jack Kirby, he would talk that way, too, of like, it's my job to sell books. Uh, you know? Dan Klaus has interviews where he's like, I need to sell more magazines, mm -hmm. you know? Well, I think you can draw a line to, like, Chris Ware. We talk about self-effacing, but for Milt Kniff to be like, I sell newspapers, you know, like, there's a real humility in that answer, and I feel like you can... You can trace that line to some of the uh, alternative cartoonist uh, characters that we know. But I love this This top first sentence is, Miller says, you know, entertainer is fine in my book. What I won't take is factory hand. Mm -hmm. This is, let's put it through the kayfabe wrestling translator. I think of Vince McMahon saying, not wrestler, sports entertainer, and not a hand. You don't want to be the hand. You know, this is the carpenter. This is the guy who's really good in the ring, but isn't selling the tickets. Right. You know, and these are this is a mentality to put on yourself it comes down to vision mm -hmm. uh there are plenty of people you go to your comic con and there are like those like little sections set up with the easel and you have your artist who has a bandolier of whiteout pens mm -hmm. and microns and they are so stoked to go up there and just like just draw and show off yeah that's your hand mm -hmm. you know like that's your person that like will draw whatever you tell them give them the script they're happy to execute. And and this continues the conversation where they both are are just like, you know, we're not in the position like we're not we're not those guys. Like mm -hmm. Eisner never was. Yeah. But they're talking about being like the monthly dude on the monthly grind and they're talking about you know, like Miller, I gave up on page rates a long time of, ago. And uh just sort of, you know, through conversation, through through interviews and stuff, like the dark horse deal that he got, it wasn't like there were competing offers coming and he was getting some like wild thing like like sin city had to sell for him to make yeah real loot on that and it was you know back end percentages and shit and eisner's just breaking down like yeah you like the average money that you know a, a assembly line guy can make like drawing comics if you get a page done a day maybe you get 800 bucks a week thirty five thousand a year forty five thousand a year 
I mean, maybe that's something in 2002. I'd aspire for more. There's a field of flowers blooming uh, in response to the what, he, what Eisner saw at uh, the Small Press Expo convention. Names get brought up, Art Spiegelman, Scott McCloud, Chris Wares, guys who are advancing the form. I, I met Eisner at SPX around this time. You're a blooming flower, Yes, dude. I was a blooming flower. <laughs> yeah, I can remember seeing him and Miller walking around, walking around SPX. That's Just before packed, my time. Packed with books. I, I uh, gave Will Eisner a copy of the Myth of Oedipus number one, and he he's like, oh, you must really like Jack Kirby. And then it was like Piranha. Everybody was like, take my book, take my book. Like everybody was like offering <laughs> their book too. <laughs> that that uh, Will Eisner, if he were alive today, he could get like four hundred bucks for that comic. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, man. <laughs> Your Final Frontier is going uh, for a hundred dollars, uh, as per uh, the Key Collectors uh, app on your iPhone. Yeah, there's only there's only like five hundred copies of that out there. So. Big contrast between Eisner and Miller in these final pages of the ch this chapter, where you know Eisner is seeing this optimism and saying he wishes he was twenty five or thirty years younger, and Miller's talking about um, there's a deep seated sickness, you know, and, and that sickness is self contempt. Two guys, man, looking, seeing very different things when they when they look out. Yeah, yeah, and like, man, like the the what Miller see. Uh, go go to that same SPX, man, and a lot of those people who are there, kind of still are there, and uh, they're the people that like don't have much nice. To, they, there's a there's a lot of neurosis in in comics and in comics makers and stuff like that. A lot of hatred. Uh, who was it, man? Was it Brubaker who, who said in an interview, like, uh, there are like two types of creatives or the people who see somebody do something and that provides evidence that that is possible. So they move forward. And there are the people who are like, Hey, how does that guy get that opportunity? How does that guy get that chance? Like, I think that's a big part of the self-contempt because what it becomes is, uh, being jealous over nickels and dimes. I think it also speaks to Eisner's been pushing this forever like yeah. he never worked under the comics code you know right. he never worked for harry donenfeld he's always been finding these outlets where he gets to control the work that he's making yeah and you know i think that probably informs his outlook sure yeah that's that point of view of, of just like hey i could do it you could do it mm -hmm. and like you know some people don't have that that yeah uh outward uh potential man to make make deals like that and you speak about like uh comics history and how hard it is to find any non-marvel dc comics history that was Eisner whenever I first started out. Yeah. Because, like, Eisner was known, praised, admired, but it was like, well, what happened after the spirit? You know, mm -hmm. like, it, he just disappears, even though you hear he's doing these army comics, right. which now we've had reprinted and you get to see those. He was still making comics, but they weren't comics I saw or yeah. had access yeah. to for, for, for what felt like decades. I would say that even the spirit is a later discovery for a person of our generation sure, yeah. who was who was into comics yeah, it's, definitely. it's marvel it's dc like you have this this comics by les daniels i don't think it, like the spirit might be mentioned but i don't think we got any kind of uh spirit stories in here you know and he and he was such an important part of comics so you know this speaks to that marvel dc tradition in, a, in kind of a big way super fun another fi five five uh parts of Eisner Miller down uh, we're halfway finished you know there's 30 pieces total man and uh, the conversations that I uh, get to have with you fellas man while we uh, unpack the conversations of two comics lifers uh, I think it makes for a very 
fantastic engaging videos man and the comment section definitely is is lively on these as well you guys good to go yes okay favors like follow subscribe to the youtube channel hit the bell we'll notify you when new vids are available it's out there jimmy hulk grand design monster number one is in comic shops everywhere and this is a retelling of the 60-year history of the Incredible Hulk, both in and out of comics. So pick that up wherever you buy comic books and join me on patreon.com slash jimrug to see how I make the comics I make like Hulk Grand Design. Red, Red Room Trigger Warnings, issue number one, out on the stands today. Uh, Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit coming out on a monthly basis. Uh, banned in 26 countries, banned in seven comic shops, but they will still order it for you if you ask, man. So put the word out get your comics uh, put into your pool bags. Uh, if you want to read these comics before they hit paper, go to my Patreon, patreon.com slash edpiscor, three bucks for the archive there. Have more than 200 pages of comics strips up there as we speak with new pages showing up every Tuesday. You can get to these links in my link tree in the description below this video. Uh, check out Fantastic Four Grand Design and Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics, uh, which just got an Italian edition. And uh, check out my YouTube channel, Total Recall Show, and my Patreon. Go to patreon.com, search Tom Scholey. Jimmy, what else we have out there? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. Record number of shirts ordered this past week, man. And it's a great way to uh, support the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Jimmy, given the marching orders, we'll be on our way. Make more comics.